Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 278 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, thank you so much for joining us tonight, we appreciate it. Chris is in sunny San Diego for a couple days, but I am joined by our friend Allison McCaig to talk about the Mets' recent troubles. Uh, let's get to it. Well, we had high hopes for this week, <laughs> and those high hopes have not really uh, come to pass. The Mets only have won two games since we last spoke. One of them was a rainout. Uh, but with the exception of, I guess, last night's game, which would be uh, Wednesdays, for those who aren't listening to this as we're recording, um, the Mets have been relatively close in some of these games. And, mm-hmm. you know, it hasn't been all doom and gloom. But I think it's important that we have sort of a frank conversation about the starting pitching right now. So, yeah. Allison. We've had a couple of good starts from DeGrom and Syndergaard wasted. Yeah. We've had a couple of not-so-good starts from folks like Zach Wheeler and uh, Stephen Matz. We've had, <coughs> excuse me, uh, demotion of Matt Harvey. Mm-hmm. We have Jason Vargas joining the team on Saturday in San Diego. Overall, how are you feeling about the team starting pitching, and what, if anything, do you hope they do about it? I would feel a lot better about it if we stopped blowing these DeGrom and Syndergaard games. Um, but I, it's it's honestly, it's not great right now. Um, I, I can't, outside of DeGrom and Syndergaard, the rotation looks pretty bad. But the optimist in me says, you know what? We have alternatives. We don't have to be locked into this. Um, so Vargas is coming back. I mean, we don't know exactly what we're going to get out of him because we haven't seen him yet this year, but it's hard to be much worse than the rest of the rotation has been. Um, I don't think expecting something like, you know, a little bit better than a six ERA is too, too tall of an order. Um, so I'm hoping that he, you know, automatically becomes the third best starter, which is saying something because going in after the Vargas signing, we were like, yeah, he'll be a solid five, (laughs) but now he's got to be a solid three. Uh, so good luck with that, Jason, no pressure. Um, so that'll be, you know, that'll certainly fortify the rotation to have him back. Um, but even still, then we have kind of a week four or five as I see it now. But like I said, um, we have alternatives like Lugo and Gazelman are still in the bullpen. I am hesitant to, at least with Gazelman, I'm hesitant to pull him out of there because he's been so successful in that role. But, you know, when worse comes to worse, the starting pitching matters more. Um, they're going to throw the most innings. So if you want your best pitchers to throw the most innings, then you got to go with the meritocracy that I think Mickey Calloway has been pretty successful in employing, at least as far as the rotation goes. Yeah, what complicates matters here is that the bullpen hasn't been very good either. So right. to take two of the one or two of the bright spots in the bullpen and pull them out of the bullpen, then you're suddenly left with the question of well, who's going to pitch late in games for the Mets. And as you said, the starting pitching is a bit more important just because of the volume of innings that they will be throwing. But it's you know, Chris. If Chris was here, Chris would be saying that you know, well, this is why the Mets should have signed another one or two bullpen arms this offseason. And and Chris would be absolutely right. You know, this pitching staff needed not an not a complete overhaul, but it needed more of an overhaul than it was given. And yes. because of the relative lack of moves that were done, 
the Mets' hands are tied a little bit right now. Now, there are still lots of unsigned free agents out there, and the Mets do have Gazelman and Lugo, and, you know, bullpen arms are relatively fungible commodities, so it's not like they couldn't find somebody else out there who could, you know, somewhat replicate what, say, uh, Hansel Robles or somebody is doing on a, on a day-to-day basis. But it just seems to me like, I mean, this is part of this is just is baseball. The, the 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 strength of the team one week is the downfall of the team the next week. But yeah. it's so damn frustrating because the bullpen was so good to start the season. Yeah. And it's just really fallen off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, um, I think people have been dragging Familia a lot because, you know, he's blown three saves now, right? Three saves now. Um, but he still has like a 1.94 ERA on the season and is striking out like 11 per nine innings or something like that. So like, if anything, he's walking too many folks. Yeah. Yeah. That's his main issue. That's his main issue. Um, and I think it's, you know, the, the like implosion-ness, um, has kind of been spread out amongst everyone. Like no one has been particularly awful, except I guess one could argue maybe Jerry Blevins. Um, but like, it's it's kind of troubling that it's like, you know, it seems to have spread. And even t- today, it's spread to Gazelman a little bit. So it's kind of just like, all right, who hasn't had a bad day now? <laughs> but, you know, it, bullpens are, by their nature, you know, high-variance commodities. So yeah. we knew that we were going to have times like this. We knew it wasn't going to last forever. We just hope that, like, the implosion isn't closer to the real norm than the first part of the season and right. we can carry on and, you know, have, you know, ups and downs, but have the average be pretty close to good. <laughs> right. What's frustrating in addition to all of that is that, you know, last week there was the series against the, the, the um, nationals, which I think everybody pretty much agreed turned out about as we'd expect with, with the various matchups and what I, it wasn't, I don't think anybody expected them to come in and sweep the nationals. Right, yeah. so they they, they, yeah. they lost they lost two of three. That's not great, but you can you can live with that. The two losses of the Braves are somewhat less excusable. Yeah, and the two losses to the Cardinals, even though they're they're pretty hot right now, are even less excusable than that, in my opinion, because the Mets really should have won today's game. Yeah, they really should have won, and, and they <laughs> almost didn't win Monday's game, which they also really should have won. <laughs> yeah, it's really. I mean, okay, we can chalk up Wednesday's game to, you know, take an L on that one. But really today was immensely frustrating. And I mean, I actually missed most of the end of this game. I went to class at 3.30. So when I went to class, Syndergaard had just escaped the seventh and we were still winning. And I was like, okay. And then I got to class and I just like on game day watched it slowly (laughs) just like go to shit and I was like, oh, no, oh, no, here we go. No. <laughs> this just feels like an awful lot of bullpen implosions this early. Yeah. Like, I understand that losses happen, especially April losses happen. I'm not upset about the fact that, like, I think, the, you know, not not to sound like Mickey Calloway, we'll get to that in a minute, but, like, the team's record is, you know, is still somewhat inspiring. And if you had told me that this would, that they would be in this position at the end of April... I'd have taken this gladly, you know, to start the season. Yeah. It's just that it seems like it just seems like a whole lot of bads happening at the same time. 
Yeah. And I think the thing that like is really getting to me with the overall feel right now is that even every win has been something they've had to fight tooth and nail for. Yes. Like they have not had, when's the last time they had an easy win? They've had a couple of times where they've been blown out loss wise Wednesday and then a, mm-hmm. like one or two other times. But the only time I can think of was, I mean, we had that one nine run inning against the nationals, but right. that, that was a come from behind still. Yeah, that game and then, was a grind before that. Exactly. It was a grind up until then. And that was late in the game that they did that. And then we had the Strasburg Grand Slam game, which I which was a bit of a blowout. But other than those two, I can't really think of any game where we won by more than like two runs. Or if we run by if if they won by two runs, it was more than two runs. They weren't easily gotten runs. Right, and they didn't like come from behind to get them and like scratch them all out in the like late innings. So I think that's been the other problem is that like every single inning has been high leverage. So the bullpen is being taxed in that regard, even though we're not necessarily near the top of the list as far as like total bullpen innings pitched. It's everything has been taxing. So, you know, you have to like you have to spread out the you know, the high leverage situation somehow. And I mean, Mickey Calloway is trying and he's made some mistakes, but like, you know, what are you going to do? Like we haven't had any blowouts. Everything is close. <laughs> that and, and what's, I mean, again, we can, we can talk about what's frustrating about this team all day, but you know, the, the other part of, of this is that even though the team, you know, is, has been overall winning more this season than we had hoped or maybe the way the way it thought, no one, no one offensively except for Estrubal Cabrera, who, who's had who did not look all that great today. Yeah, pretty bad. No one is having like a a dominant season either, and that's good and that's bad. Like on one hand, I like that every day during the winning streak there was a different hero. Like that, that's yeah. a nice thing. But sometimes you need a player to just pick up a team and carry it on his on his back for a little while. Yeah, and, there, and I think we're starting so to get far. there. We're yes. starting to get there. We're getting to the point where I'm like, all right, Sess, like it's time. It's yeah. time to go on a tear because we need to rip off like three or four wins in a row where Cespedes just like hits four dingers. And, you know, we we just I feel like we need a run like that for me to like feel OK again. <laughs> yeah. And this weekend could be a nice bomb for what's ailing us, you know. Yeah. Uh, between San Diego and Vargas returning and just, you know, there's a chance. There's a chance we feel a lot better at the end of this weekend, but man, it's been rough. And part of of the roughness, and this is sort of transitioning into into the next part of our chat, part of what's been so rough is just that all of the non-DeGrom Syndergaard starters have looked like absolute trash lately. Yeah, oh God. And I think of everyone... I like, and we know, and we can talk about this later. We know I'm a big, big Harvey person. I love yes. Harvey, but like, to me, the most disappointing has been Steven Matz. He's the most disappointing of all of them, in my view, because Wheeler was kind of an unknown commodity. He hasn't pitched in a long time, so we didn't know really know what we were getting out of him. Um, and I think he can. I think he's still going to continue to be like an up and down sort of roller coaster ride for a while while he figures it out. Matt Harvey, sort of the same, but for a slightly different reason. You know, this is post TOS Harvey. You know, it's kind of hard to know what you're going to get out of him. But Matt's 
for all intents and purposes, is healthy. And in the past, when he's been healthy, he's been good. His issue has been injuries. But every time he's been healthy, he's been pretty good to excellent. So I am really concerned that if this is a healthy Mats, that that's not good. (laughs) Well, part part of the thing with Mats, too, is that we have the least amount of evidence to play with with Mats. Yeah. And so I feel like we remember the good stuff for Mats because there's not as much mediocre stuff or as much bad stuff. You know, you sort of remember the good Mats and the injured Mats because there are so few starts to actually, you know, to, to actually look at to get this information from. Whereas with Harvey and Wheeler, we remember good starts. We also remember a lot of bad starts with those guys. So yeah. it's not so it's not unusual to see them struggling. It is unusual to see Matt struggling because, as you said, when he's healthy, he's been genuinely good. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, like, the other thing is, like like I said, post-TOS Harvey, TOS is, like, a complete wild card. You don't know yeah. what's going to happen. And more pitchers have, you know, gone down from it than recovered. But, you know, Stephen Matt's main issue, at least the latest one of many, seems to have been this ulnar um, nerve repositioning surgery, which is what Jacob deGrom had. And Jacob deGrom recovered perfectly well. And other pitchers have recovered perfectly well from it and gone back to, you know, pitching pretty much how they were before. Um, so like I have less concerns that the injuries are still impacting Matt's. They shouldn't be, but yet here he is and he's ineffective. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if sometimes, well, let me back up. You know, obviously the Mets are a franchise that has had great starting pitching historically over the Mm -hmm. course of their, of their existence. And I think that we are, I mean, every, every team is guilty of this, but I think Mets fans in particular are guilty of perhaps overvaluing the pitchers that they have because they were so hyped to us for so long. You know, we heard about Matt's for for so long. I I remember listening to this very podcast before I was a part of it and hearing Jeff refer to Matt's as a motherfucker, meaning that, like, he he was like, shove, you know, when when push came to shove, Stephen Matt's is a motherfucker, and he would just, he would... He would go as hard as possible, you know, and no one was going to stop him because because he's just going to he's going to be that guy. And so yeah. before I ever saw Matt's throw a pitch, I had heard all of this. And I'm not blaming Jeff Paternoster for this, but, you know, I, I had heard so much about him. And I think that as Mets fans, sometimes we just put all of our eggs in these baskets. Whereas, like, I mean, when you look at when you look at Matt's dispassionately, how many good starts has the kid had? Like, really, really good. Yeah. Starts. Yeah. Um, not too many because I mean, he's had, he's had starts where he hasn't given up much, but he has never really been a pitcher that has gone deep into games, even when he was good. No, I mean, you know, in terms of quality starts, I'd be really surprised if he has more than 20 quality starts in the course of his career. Yeah. Yeah. And And I remember not that that's that's the end all be all stat, but you know, it's just, you know, for purposes of our conversation. Yeah, and, and hearing uh, your point about hearing all about Matt's before he ever threw a pitch, I remember that interview that Kevin Burkhart did with him when he was in high school, and he just got had gotten drafted. So that's how long we've yeah. been hearing about Stephen Matt's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. it's, and there was also, you know, Matt's had that great first start where his grandfather was there and said, holy yeah. shit, in the stands, you know, and, and I think he got a double that game or a triple that game. Like he... Double, yeah. You know, and... Uh, he had multiple hits that game. Yeah. You know, there was just this this real optimism there. But the reason I bring that up is that I wonder if, if the Mets are just going to be 
you know, I, I have criticized the Mets many times for being too slow to cut bait on bad veteran players. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Jose Reyes being the perfect example this season. Does he still not have a hit? He has a hit. He had three hits in one game. Oh, that's true. That's so true. he broke that, but I don't think he's had a hit since then either. Yeah. Um, so he had those three hits in the one game, and that's like basically all he's done. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that similarly, I think the Mets sometimes are, are, are a little bit too slow to give up on their failed homegrown talent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I wonder, I mean, you know, again, if Chris was here, Chris would have said they needed to sign two starting pitchers this offseason, and he has never looked more correct than he looks right now. That's fair. I And my argument was, and I mean, I, may, maybe not as correct as Chris, but more correct <laughs> than like nothing is or what we did was I, I was arguing very hard to sign a, a higher, you know, tier than Vargas. Right. Um, which, I mean, who knows? Because, you know, Lance Lynn has been really not great. So that doesn't look like it would have been, you know, maybe the best signing. And that's kind of a name that I had thrown about. It's like kind of that tier of pitcher. Um, it didn't have to be Lance Lynn specifically, but that tier. But, you know, that tier has all kind of performed poorly at their respective teams. Lance right. Lynn, Alex Cobb both look pretty bad. So who the heck knows? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but your your point is well taken. You know, I think we all ex- not we all expected. We all hoped that that the that the, the the Fantastic Five, whatever they're calling themselves, would be enough to to sort of you know carry us through the first part of the season, and then come July we can reevaluate. Well, yeah. Come come, come middle of April we needed to reevaluate. You know, it's it's just right. It's been a lot of bad things, but I guess my my question for you is, and we, we can include Harvey in this conversation at sure. the end of the season. Which of those three, Harvey, Wheeler, and Mats, will wind up with the lowest ERA for the team? Mm. Um, I'm going to go with Wheeler. Me too, and I never thought I would say that. Me neither. I would have picked Mats immediately. Like, I wouldn't have even hesitated if you had asked me that question before we started the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm going with Wheeler, I think. I don't think it's going to be – I think it's going to be kind of close, though. I don't think it's going to be a runaway by any means. No, I don't think there's a single candidate of those three who's real. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I, – I will happily eat my hat over this. But, you know, it's just – it's 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 been rough for a few weeks. It has been. It has. And I think, you know – but, you know, I think that the best strategy to remedy this may very well be, you know – Syndergaard and DeGrom take the ball every fifth day without question, as long as they're healthy. And the others, whoever makes up others, like those other four or five guys, rotate between the other three spots. And whoever's pitching well gets one of the spots at that point. And, you know, shuttle the other ones back to the bullpen or whatever you want to do, phantom DL, whatever you want to do. Like, if, if that's what it takes for the rotation to be effective, then I'm on board. Yeah, my concern with that, uh, I mean, theoretically, I agree completely. My concern with that is just the, I, the concept of stretching guys out yeah, is not sure. as easy as, as you know, as one, two, three. So my concern is going to be, well, who do the Mets have in Vegas who can be that spot starter or two starts while they stretch somebody out? And there's not great answers there either. There isn't. It's really pretty much Corio's Oswald, um, Flexin, 
Yeah. And that's really it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And Oswald, you know, he looked he looked not great yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. he did he did put in a workman's, you know. Yes. He... Oh, certainly. Yes, yes. He uh he did not give up. He he saved some of the bullpen. Good for him. But, you know, to to call Corey Oswald the uh the savior of the team is probably uh not not in the works, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But then the other part of the team we haven't talked about yet that has been surprisingly bad has been its defense, and particularly its infield defense. Jesus. And and, and that was one of the selling points for this season. Yeah, you know, yeah. First of all, I, I'll never understand what people thought they were seeing from Lucas Duda at first base because he wasn't a bad defensive first baseman. No, no, he was but, pretty good, actually. But, like, you know, Gary Cohen a number of times this season has talked about the vast improvement at first base, and you know, it's just it's just not true. But that's a whole other story. I still love I don't Ga- see it. Yeah, I still I love Gary Cohen, even if even if he drives me absolutely mad sometimes. Yeah. Um, but you know, Frazier has looked really really shaky at third the last couple of games. And there's yeah. a guy. There's a guy with again a guy a sterling defensive reputation. Yeah. And he's looked bad. You know, R- R- Rosario has had a couple of troubled throws, which is something that yeah. you know I think. First of all, shortstop, you know, infielders get the yips every now and then that that happens, um, and he's young, etc. But it's really been sort of shocking how inconsistent the infield defense has been. And again, this wouldn't be that alarming if the bullpen also wasn't being shit, and if the starting pitching also wasn't being shit, and if nobody was offensively firing on all <laughs> cylinders yet. It's just every. Everything. Everything. If, if Everything they, is bad. If they didn't win those nine games in a row, who oh boy. Oh, things would be ugly right now. Things yeah. would feel ugly. But, yeah, I mean, infield defense. So, I mean, it's hard. Ahmed Rosario kind of sort of cost them the game today a little bit. He, I mean, he made a very costly error today. Yes. It's just poor. And But I don't want to pile on the guy because, like you said, he's young He's still adjusting to the pace of big league play. I think what is not appreciated enough is what an adjustment that is. And when a prospect is hailed as sort of like a defensive whiz and a like glove first guy like Rosario has been, like people expect it to translate immediately. And I think that we've seen, I mean, I think I've seen from him the raw talent for sure. I can tell that he's really talented and he reads balls well and he's has the ra- he has range out the wazoo. Um so I can tell that he has the tools, but like that's not going to translate immediately at the big league level when you're not used to the pace. And I think that sometimes he just I think a little bit he's also putting too much pressure on himself. Um and he just like got to do it, got to do it right away and then he just like flings the ball and it's not a great throw. Yeah. Um, He'll get there. He'll get there. I'm. I'm. He has. A, he has a higher ceiling than we're than we're seeing right now, and I think that it's okay, and we can adjust. But in the meantime, it's going to be costly. But contending teams do this all the time. They play their young guys, and they trust their young guys, and they ride out the rough edges. And we're having the rough edges now while it's April. And I think that I'm hoping that he will continue to develop. The other guys is a little more troubling because they're not young prospects who will develop further. <laughs> right. I mean, the Gonzalez thing doesn't worry me that much because I still think there's a very good chance Gonzalez isn't the first baseman in six weeks. Yeah. So I'm less worried about that. 
And, you know, again, players do go through defensive slumps, they go through offensive slumps, etc. But for a guy who's supposed to be a really good third baseman, Frazier has not looked that good the last week and a half. Yeah, yeah. It's been weird because he's also, like, made a lot of plays that, like, I know that are third baseman in the past, i.e., like, Reyes, Flores, whatever fill-in you want to put there, um, would not have made. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. But at the same time, he hasn't been as good as advertised at all. <laughs> and that's not really his fault in terms of advertising. I think, you know. No. I think part of this is also, you know, we're all pining for David Wright still. Yeah, I know. So, I still am. I always will. That's so not going to go away. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to go away. And But the thing is, is like even once Gonzalez is replaced at first base by, I guess, maybe Jay Bruce. I hope so. Like, that's not going to be, like, let's not expect that to be great defensively. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, our overall defense should, in theory, improve because it's. I think it'll be really hard for Jay Bruce to be truly awful at first base, and then our outfield defense will improve. Yes. Because Jay Bruce is not there anymore, and Jay Bruce has been terrible this year. If we want to talk about bad defense, I think Jay Bruce has kind of t- taken the cake so far. I, at the beginning of the year, I didn't think the plantar fasciitis was affecting him, but now, I think it really is now. Yeah, that, and it will affect him far less in the infield. Yes. Um, so if we're looking at sort of the problem areas we've talked about so far, Starting pitching, bullpen, infield defense, general lack of offensive consistency. Which one do you think solves itself first, and which one are we still going to be worried about two months down the road? Um, I think the offense solves itself first, and we're still going to be worried about the defense the most later. I, I agree with you on the offense. I think the starting pitching is going to be still problematic. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think the best case scenario for the Mets right now is that they are in a position to compete come July, and they have a piece to trade, whatever that piece is, to get a starting pitcher. Yeah, I was going to say, what do we have to trade at this point? I mean, I think that, the, honestly, I don't want to see the guy go. I could see them turning Nimmo into somebody at the, at the break. I could see that. It would make me really sad, though. <laughs> it would make me horribly sad. You know, Nimmo is a great story for all the right reasons, you know, and uh, you know, he looks like my brother. You know, he, he's, a, he's a guy I want. I, my, if you ever see my brother, they smile exactly the same. Oh. Um, so, like, you know, I uh, it would be really nice to have that guy still on the team, but I don't see what other pieces they have that are major league ready and that they have a surplus to deal from. Yeah, and they seem unwilling to use Nimmo as much as he should be used anyway, it seems. Yeah. Again, unless Jay Bruce is playing first base or someone gets hurt, Nimmo's going to be starting here and there. What I don't understand is how he hasn't, before today, he hadn't started in 10 days. Or before yesterday, rather. He hadn't started yeah. in 10 days. Yeah, yeah. So what, like, my question to you is, like, what... What piece would you have to get back to feel comfortable trading Brandon Nimmo? Is it JT Real Muto? Is it like a starting pitcher? Like it's what a starting would pitcher you, for me. It's a starting pitcher. Yeah, I, I think that. I think if the if the not if when the offense starts to write itself, yes, catching is going to be a black hole in the lineup right now. At least until God, can you believe I'm saying until Kevin Plawecki is back. The, the offense will be bad from catching spot. That tells you <laughs> how bad it's been. But, you yeah. know, 
I can live with with a dead spot in the lineup if Bruce Conforto, Frazier, Cabrera, um, Cespedes, if all of them are hitting at least, if all of them are, are, are near or slightly below their career norms, the offense is going to be okay. Yeah, I agree. I think that the starting pitching is really troublesome because, I mean, the way I look at it now, uh, how old were you in 06 when, when the Mets were in the playoffs? 16. Okay, see, I was about uh, a little less than 10 years older. I guess I'm, I'm like eight years older than you are. So I was in my, my mid-20s watching that. And mm-hmm. in 06, in the postseason, there were, Pedro was hurt. It was just, there yeah. were so many injuries. It felt like, all right, if we don't get a good performance out of John Mayne, <laughs> yeah, we're fucked, you know. So yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. I'm just afraid that if the Mets can somehow put together a a playoff caliber team, and that's a big question right now. But if so, they only have two starting pitchers that I would feel confident right now pitching in the playoffs. I mean, Vargas, I guess maybe could get there, but Jason Vargas isn't supposed to be a frontline starter. No, you know, and uh, I just think that the Mets would have to get, and I don't know what level of starting pitcher I'm even talking about yet. They would have to get yeah. a, a quality starting pitcher back for Nemo. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, I, I guess there's also the chance that that Ligaris has a really good first half somehow, even though he's not hitting very well so far, and they could flip him. But I think you're going to get way, way, way more for Nemo. Yeah. In terms of just, like, straight-up, like, batting average slash OPS, Ligaris is actually outperforming our our starting outfielders. <laughs> it's not saying much, but he is. No, it's not. No. Um, now let's let's talk very briefly about Mickey Callaway. So okay. after today's game, Mickey Callaway said a couple of things that that raised your eyebrows. Yes. Why don't you tell the listeners what Callaway said and how you responded? So before, I think this was before the game. So before the game, he talked about like people asked him about using Juan Lagares as a late inning defensive replacement and he said basically no I haven't really thought much about doing that you know if you start the game you finish the game and I was kind of like that is really potentially the dumbest thing you've ever said like that's (laughs) and that like I know that you haven't been here long but I'm I'm chalking that one down right now is the dumbest thing you've said so far as manager um it was frustrating to see that um, and furthermore, it was frustrating because Matt Ehalt was the one that tweeted about it. And he followed uh, that up with like, he, exactly grown, grown. Um, and so like he quoted Callaway saying that, and then he followed that up with like an even worse take, which is that like, this is why they should trade Juan Lagares. Basically. It's like, Oh, like the answer to the answer isn't Callaway just said a dumb thing and they should use Lagares properly. The answer instead is, oh, this is why they should trade him. No. <laughs> so that was really frustrating on multiple levels to read. Um, but then he used Juan Ligaris in today's game defensively, even though it didn't work in the end. But that was a really tough play. I'm not going to get on Juan for that. It was like, it would have been a spectacular play if he had made it. And he's but, a guy who makes spectacular plays. So sure. if he couldn't yes. do it, you know. Nobody can. Yeah. <laughs> Almost nobody. Um, but yeah, it was just like really confusing to to see that. And I was like, I don't understand when we have such a poor defensive team, this is the type of stuff you have to do to win games. Um, but then after the game, 
um, the basically the beats were asking Callaway about like, you know, how frustrating it must be to lose these DeGrom and Syndergaard starts when they're putting up such quality starts. Um, and he said, well, you know, I'd be frustrated about it if the record wasn't what it is. And I thought that that was like a terrible answer and sort of a cop out. Um, like, yes, we're all still very happy that the record is what it is. Like you and I have said earlier in the podcast, like if you had told me this would be the record on April 26th, I would have signed up for that. Um, however, that doesn't mean that you can gloss over the team's problems just because the record is good. That's not an appropriate way to respond to that. I, I don't expect Mickey Calloway to be like, yeah, we suck now or anything like that. But I expect him to be like, oh, yeah, that it has been frustrating, but, you know, we're going to improve. These are some things we're going to do to get out of this funk or something like that. Right, right. Especially because just on a like just on a common sense level, if the Mets had won those those three games, those last two ground starts and today's Syndergaard start. Yeah. Three wins down the stretch means a hell of a lot. Oh, yeah. And. I don't think Callaway would be talking this way if it was August, but the games mean exactly the same in August and April. Exactly. So you should, and, and again, we're not saying blow up the team; it's over. But there has to be some sort of accountability here, and say, and look, I really can't fault Callaway for the way the bullpen has performed. He has not been doing too many stupid bullpen moves. Right, I agree. You know, he he's been managing the bullpen certainly better than Terry Collins, but you know. A blind dog with a spinning wheel could have managed the, <laughs> the uh, bullpen better than Terry Collins. So I, I, I'm, this isn't on his managerial performance necessarily, but to me that is such a cop out because literally first place means nothing right now. Right. It means absolutely nothing. unless this unless there's a strike or a natural disaster and the Mets don't play any more games this season. That's the only way being in first place on April 26th matters. Right. And I think this is just in general, like shouting scoreboard as a response is never a good response. (laughs) No. And I would even be more okay with this response if it was mid-July and the team was up by four or five games and they lost one or two and said, look, we're still in first place. We're still playing well. Sure. It's still not a great answer. It, It still somewhat takes away the responsibility of winning games, which is an absurd thing for a manager to take away from his team. But yeah. But come on, in April, that that just rings really false. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I didn't like that at all. And I don't know. I just feel like on a on a broader level, like what kind of message does that send to Degrom and Syndergaard, who must be really frustrated that they keep putting forth these really great efforts to have them squandered away? Like obviously, you know, to a certain extent, that's going to happen to every pitcher. And, you know, there are other times when a pitcher performs poorly and his teammates pick him up and they know that there's a balance there. But, you know, to hear the manager be like, eh, these blown starts don't really bother me. We're still in first place. Like, as a player who had his fantastic start blown, I'd be a little ticked off, to be honest. Agreed. Agreed. And again, like, we're not saying this is the end of the world. I, I want to keep qualifying no. this. Chris is not here to be the optimistic voice of reason, so <laughs> I-, I have to keep trying to say that. But, you know, it's um, yeah, there are two ways to look at this. If this were right after the nine-game winning streak and they blew a DeGrom and Syndergaard start, you know, within three days, I'd say, well, that's baseball. Yeah. But because they've been so bad and then they're even blowing the things that are good, that's why I'm worried. Yeah, and because 
because these blown starts aren't, you know, in isolation, they're symptoms of clearly bigger problems. It's not like, like that one bullpen implosion game against the Nationals, that was too early for me to be worried about it. Like, I was kind of like, you know what? far too random. Yeah. I was kind of like, you know what? Literally no one did their job. Like, yes, this game was infuriating. I'm infuriated about the game, especially because it was against the Nationals. I hate them. But I'm not, like, I'm not, like, on the cliff. Like, the bullpen sucks now. But it's starting to get to the point where these are starting to look like symptoms of a problem rather than just a random occurrence. Agreed. Well, we have an email we're going to read. And this is from our friend David, who uh, David sends us lots of nice emails and we always appreciate them. And you too can send us emails, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Um, but here's what David has to say. Hello. While the last week or so has been a struggle for the Mets, I think one reason to have confidence going forward is the extent to which Mickey Calloway has handled the pitching, especially starting pitching, as a meritocracy. Wheeler struggled in spring training and lost his spot in the rotation. When he did well in AAA, he got his opportunity. And while it may have been easier in some respects to let Harvey make at least one more start, he's been the weak link in the rotation, so now he's in the bullpen. My question is this, then. Why hasn't the outfield functioned as more of a meritocracy? And wouldn't the Mets be better off at least in the short term if it did? Lagaris and Nimmo are playing great baseball, Cespedes, Conforto, and Bruce are struggling. While I'm not arguing for any of those three guys to be buried on the bench, wouldn't the Mets be a stronger team with Lagaris and Nimmo starting more frequently, at least while they are among the Mets' three best hitters in batting average and on base percentage? In addition to their excellent slash lines, uh, albeit in 25 bats, uh, Nimmo seems to be the Mets' best, best option as leadoff hitter due to his longer bats, higher OBP, and great hustle, and Lagaris' defense remains excellent. I leave it to Mickey to ensure that our more established outfielders don't feel dis- disrespected and get sufficient playing time. But really, do we need Cespedes playing every day with the flu? Do we need Bruce, ta- Bruce taking off only a game or two with his foot injury? How would you handle the outfield at this time? Thanks, guys, and let's go Mets. David. Um, Allison, why don't you start us off with this? Well, preach, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that what he said is absolutely true and that Lagaris and Nimmo are not playing enough, and it's it's frustrating me. Um, I mean, in my view, the ideal world would actually – I mean – Okay, yes, I think the fact that Cespedes played the entire time he had the flu was pretty absurd. I think he should have gotten a a day or two off during that span. But my ideal scenario for how the outfield should look is really Adrian Gonzalez should be the one to go to the bench or go entirely. And Bruce should be at first base, and then Nimmo and Laguerre should be platooning in center field every day. That is what I view the easy solution to be. And what I thought the solution was from day one when we signed Jay Bruce. Yes, I agree with everything you just said. Preach, sister, preach. Um, I think overall there is an argument to be made that veteran players have earned the right to not be benched at the first sign of struggle. Um, Yes. And I think that there are guys like Cespedes who who claim that the only way out of a slump is through it, and so he needs to get his at-bats to get himself out of these slumps. And I, I, I totally get all of that. I think that there's a big difference between what David is suggesting and benching these players indefinitely. Yes. I, I think that there is no doubt in my mind that they could very, very easily 
have Brandon Nimmo start three games a week without anybody getting their nose out of joint. Yes. Yes, absolutely. This team, this team could easily find three starts a week for Nimmo, and they're just choosing not to. And with that, you know, one of them can be resting Bruce in the outfield. One of them could be having Bruce play first base, and one of them can be resting either Conforto or Cespedes. Yes, agree. Um, I think that, like, I think that Bruce is really the one you need to prioritize as far as rest because. He's the one that's dealing with an injury, whereas as far as we know, I mean, Conforto is coming off of an injury. Um, and basically didn't have a spring training. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's taking some time, and I think his struggles are more related to that than anything else. The fact that he didn't get a real spring training, he's still kind of finding his groove. I'm optimistic about Michael Conforto because he's taking his walks still. So I can his his on base percentage, given the fact that he barely is hitting at all, is actually quite high. It's like in the high three hundreds, I think, yes. um, like three ninety something, um, which is impressive given the fact that he's not hitting. Um, so I, that makes me optimistic that he's at least seeing pitches well and he'll break out. Um, I feel that Cespedes is going to break out because he's Cespedes and he will. Um, he's too good of a hitter to stay down that long. Um, but Jay Bruce, it's not that I am pessimistic about him as a hitter. I think he's a good hitter, but he's suffering with this foot injury. And I think that, you know, giving him more rest is prudent. <laughs> and easy. Again, we're not, we're easy. not saying, we're not saying these aren't, this is the time of year you can do that. Bruce is a veteran. He'll understand if you say, listen, we need to get you healthy because we're going to need you down the stretch. Yeah. Yeah. And Brandon Nimmo, and, like, nobody's hitting, and Brandon Nimmo is hitting, and we have no guy that is, like, a high-on-base guy right now besides Brandon Nimmo. Yeah. And I hate to break this to you guys, um, but Zubel Cabrera is not going to be this hot the rest of the season. No. I mean, he looked pretty bad today. I'm worried that this is the beginning of him falling back down to earth. But I hope that falling back down to earth just means, like, his career norms rather than crashing down completely. I mean, there's a guy who I don't think has been healthy for a 20-game stretch as a Met, you know. Yeah, I know. And they're even saying that he's playing through a bit of a hamstring thing right Right. now. Yeah. Um, So, geez. Like, he could use some rest, too. Play Wilmer Flores. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He'll be there for us because we're there for him too. Yeah. We're not using the bench enough. The bench is hitting. We're not using them. (laughs) And that that is one of the things that I was saying to anyone who would ask me. You know, I'm sure you're the same way where you've got the reputation among your friends and family as the Mets person. Oh, yeah. So, so, you know, beginning of the season, everyone's asking me, you know, what's going to happen with the Mets this year? And my answer was that the Mets are deeper than anyone gives them credit for, and their bench is going to be really good this year. And so far, the bench has been really good this year, minus a certain uh, a certain player who we're not going to name with a history of uh, domestic abuse and, you know, etc. But it's, the, the bench has been one of their strengths, but they're just not using it nearly enough. Exactly, exactly. I will tell a very quick side anecdote about being known as the Mets person mm-hmm. among, you know, my social circle. Um, I work in, uh, for people that don't know, I'm a PhD student. And so I work in the lab. 
Um, and one day, um, me and the staff scientists were like the only people left at the end of the day. It was like 7.30 or at night or something like that. And I'm like working late um, in, the, in the lab and so is he. And he just turned, it had been completely quiet. We were both working and he turned to me and he goes, Allison, you have chosen PhD and the New York Mets. You must like suffering. And then he just turned back and <laughs> went back to what he was working on. And I was like, that's a little too real. You you know, I, I'm personally attacked by that accurate comment. <laughs> I took my family to Disney World recently. Yeah. And as we were walking in, I was wearing a Mets cap. And uh, the security guy was like, Mets fan, huh? And I gave my standard response, which is, we all have our crosses to bear. This is mine. <laughs> and uh, he thought it was like the funniest thing anyone's ever said to him. He was cracking up. So, yeah. So I, I know the feeling. Yeah, the yep. amount of times that, like, when people say, like, Mets fan, and I'm like, yep, and they just say, why? Like, the amount of times that the response has been just, why, has been a lot. <laughs> yes, yes, agreed. All right, well, um, you know, we said this last week, but hopefully this road trip continues. This road trip will, the end of the road trip will give them a little bit of hope and that they can come back to New York on a bit of a of a high note and that we can get back to some sort of normalcy in one department of the team yeah, by the next yeah. time we speak. Yes. And and the bright side, the eternal bright side, we are never playing the Cardinals again unless we see them in October. I'll drink to that. Yeah, because they are evil and full of devil magic, and I don't want to see them anymore. And we got that crap out of the way in April, and we got away 500 on the season series, so I call that not bad. What is it about teams from Missouri and their devil magic? I don't know. I can't tell you. Um, but I will say that my overall take right now, even though things seem bad, is that things were never going to be as good as they were during the hot stretch, and they're not going to be as bad as they seem now. They're going to be somewhere in between those two things. That's a very reasoned take. <laughs> I like to be full of reasoned takes, or at least I hope. <laughs> Says the PhD student. Yeah, yeah. Hey everyone, this is Steve Seiper, and I'm back to go over our minor league players of the week. We just finished week two, which was April 15th to April 21st. The Las Vegas 51s went 2-5 and five for the week, and that puts them at 5-12 and 12 for the season, which is dead last in the division and dead last in the PCL period. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies went 3-2, and two, and they had two games postponed due to rain and inclement weather, and that leaves them at 6-7 and seven for the season, which is fourth place in the Eastern League Eastern Division. The St. Lucie Mets went 1-4 with a game postponed because of rain, and they are also in last place in the Florida State League South Division uh, with a 7-8 and eight record. And finally, Columbia Fireflies went 4-2 and two with a game canceled because of the rain. And they are 10-6 and six for the season, which puts them tied for first place in the South Atlantic League Southern Division. So at least the Mets have one team that is doing well. And a big reason for that is because of our pitcher of the week and our hitter of the week. Our pitcher of the week is Columbia Fireflies right-hander Chris Vile. He started one game this week, and he threw five innings, allowing one run on two hits. 
He walked four, and he struck out a career-high 11 batters. The walks aren't good, but that's the thing with Vile. He's six foot nine inches, and extra tall pitchers are known for having issues with the mechanics because they're just so damn tall. Um, in Vile's case, there are a bunch of things that I've noticed about him, especially out of the stretch. But it all mostly comes down to balance and getting better at keeping himself balanced. Um, sometimes he'll repeat his leg lift, other times he won't. Sometimes he'll plant his foot one way, other times he won't. Sometimes his arm angle is a little bit higher, sometimes it's a little bit lower. But it all, I think, comes down to balance, and that's something that he's got to work on. But he's got a decent amount of upside, though. Um, whether or not he actually fulfills it or not, who knows. But you could say that about every single minor league player in the history of baseball. He throws a good fastball. And because he's so tall, it kind of jumps up on batters and looks even faster, the the Chris Young effect. And he complements that fastball with a tight power curve and a changeup. looks like a circle change that has some decent fade and tailing motion to it. Now, about that fastball, because it has the potential to be a pretty special one. Generally speaking, it sits about in the low to mid-90s, but when he's throwing with max effort, it could top out in the high 90s. And it has even hit the century mark at least once. Now, what makes things a little interesting is that for a while, Vile was not even pitching fully healthy. Uh, his season in 2016 ended early so that he could go um, have surgery, uh, ulnar repositioning surgery, to correct numbness in his hand and his arm that had been affecting him, even going all the way back to his time in college. He returned um, last season, 2017, with Brooklyn. And he's been fully healthy since that surgery. And you can actually see the difference in his numbers. There's other factors involved, of course. But you can't tell me that getting rid of chronic arm numbness hasn't been uh, a big part of his numbers trending in the right direction. In Kingsport in 2016, he threw 20 innings, 20 innings exactly. And he posted a 6.75 ERA, giving up 18 hits, walking 17, and striking at 27. In Brooklyn last year, 2017... He threw 26.1 innings, and he posted a 3.42 ERA, giving up 17 hits, walking 14, and striking out 31. As I'm actually recording this right now, he just finished his third start of the season, which is a really great performance against the Charleston River Dogs. That's actually going to put him in the running to be pitcher of the week next week. But factoring that start now, he has a 2.51 ERA in 14.1 innings, with 12 hits allowed, 8 walks, and 29 strikeouts. So even if Vile is fully healthy and has a golden arm now, I'm not really advocating that he basically starts airing it out on every pitch. Um, more important than lighting up the right air gun is hitting your spots. There's a good quote by Sandy Koufax I found. Quote, A guy that throws what he intends to throw, that's the definition of a good pitcher. And it's true. Um, there's another quote, and unfortunately I don't remember who said it. I want to say that it was a Negro League player, but I really don't know. And if any listeners uh, know the origin or the exact quote, please leave it in the comment section. But basically, any hitter can eventually time any fastball. So you can have you know a, a pitcher throwing theoretically 150 miles per hour. It would be very difficult, but if they throw it that many times, eventually the hitter is going to be able to time things right and hit that ball. So being able to 
you know, hit your spots, throw where you want it to throw, and throw different pitches. That's the definition of a good pitcher. And I have it on good information right now that Vile is working on doing exactly just that. He's not really trying to throw hard right now. He's working on just kind of throwing strikes, getting his mechanics to repeat, and basically become, as Kofax says, a good pitcher. <clears throat> and now for our hitter of the week. That individual is another Columbia Firefly player, center fielder Quinn Brody. He went 5-for-22 this week with two triples, two home runs, six walks, six strikeouts, and one stolen base in two attempts. So Brody was drafted last year out of Stanford. Again, um, Vile was drafted out of Stanford, so we're dealing with two Stanford guys. Um, he was the Mets' third-round pick last year, 2017, and it was kind of an underwhelming pick. I I don't really pay attention to the board, the draft board, after the first round because there really are just so many variables. And without having any kind of like insider information directly from teams about players that they're interested in, there's really no telling who might get you know picked and who might draft who. But just looking at the two or three guys drafted right after Brody, um, that is right-handed, right-handed pitcher Michael Bauman and catchers Riley Adams and Connor Wong. I gotta say, they they seem more interesting than Brody. You know, they were still on the board, so in theory the Mets could have picked those guys. Um, one of the reasons, I think, is because Brody and the guy that the Mets picked in the fifth round, Matt Winokur, they just kind of seem like carbon copies of each other. They're both Stanford guys, so they both have the Stanford swing. They both have pretty good discipline, could work the count. They both have tools to stick in the outfield, although Brody is the more valuable of the two defensively because he could play center, whereas Winokur, he's gotten a lot of reps at first base, and he really is only a corner outfield guy when he's out in the outfield. Now, I would just want to rewind for a second and explain what I mean by the Stanford swing for anyone that isn't really familiar with it. Basically, for the past 40 years or so, which is pretty incredible, uh, Mark Marquez has been the head coach of Stanford's baseball program. He actually retired last season. But somewhere along the way, him and his coaches developed what has become known as the Stanford swing. Uh, it's basically an approach that emphasizes spring line drives, getting on base, and just basically keeping the hit parade going by having the next guy do the same exact thing. So the the mechanics of the swing kind of involve getting the front foot down early and just kind of slapping the ball to the opposite field or inside outing it and just kind of dunking it into the outfield with a nice, easy, level swing. So key to Brody's future is going to be his defense, I think. Um... His foot speed is generally fringe to average, but he takes good roots in center and he gets the ball quick and just kind of makes up for that. He usually plays a little deep and lets the ball fall in front of him rather than letting the ball get behind him for extra bases. And at least uh, last year when he was drafted, his throwing mechanics kind of caused his arm speed to back up a bit, giving him a fringe to average arm. Despite the fact that he actually used to pitch a bit, and he has a fastball that touches 90 miles per hour. So if he could play a decent center field and couple that with solid, if unspectacular, you know, offensive ability, that's actually a pretty decent get for this system. 
And I don't want to downplay Brody because I find him a little boring, a cookie cutter, whatever. He signed for $500,000, which is more or less what those other third round guys that I mentioned before signed for. Um, you know, the Mets signed a whole bunch of kind of limited upside college players in the second half of their top 10 picks to save room for Mark Vientos. But Brody isn't one of them. Um, the Mets thought he was their own talent. And, you know, looking back now, the general consensus from a bunch of different mock drafts from last year show that a lot of people considered him a guy that would go in those mid to late hundreds. Um, Brody went at 97, but really there's not much of a difference between 97 and, you know, 127, 157, 187, those, those next three picks. Maybe the Mets would have been able to sign him in a later round and save a little bit of money. But you know what? It's not like it really matters. I'd much rather see the money in the hands of that kid rather than in the hands of um, a billion-dollar organization, you know. So, um, those now, those were our Players of the Week for Week 2, Chris Vile and Quinn Brody. I'll be back next week to highlight the best pitching and hitting performances of Week 3. That does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for joining us. Please email the show, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We promise to read your questions on the air. You can also go to blogtalkradio.com to get this episode or any episode of this show. You can also find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It truly helps us. Also, don't forget to go, don't forget to, go to amazingavenue.com where we have all the Mets content you could ever want. Recaps, analysis, Lots and lots of fun stuff. Four or five articles a day, most weekdays. Check it out. And finally, you can... Oh, not fine. Before that, you can find us also on uh, all social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Amazing Avenue. And you can follow all of us, our lowly contributors, on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs an App. Steve is at Steve Saipa. Allison is at Petite PhD. By next week, we hope the Mets have started to get things back in gear. And whether they have won all their games or lost all their games, you can find us right here talking about it next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. And so until then, let's go Mets.